1934, Adolf Hitler summoned German church leaders to his Berlin, in, his Berlin office to berate them for not supporting fully his programs. Pastor Martin Niemöller explained that he was concerned only for the welfare of the church and the German people. Hitler snapped. He said, you confine yourself to the church and I will take care of the German people. Niemöller replied, but we too, as Christians and church leaders, have a responsibility toward the German people. That responsibility was entrusted to us by God in our calling, and neither you nor anyone in this world can take that from us. Hitler listened in silence. But that evening, his Gestapo raided Neumuller's rectory, and a few days later, a bomb exploded in his church. During the months and years following, he was closely watched by the secret police, and in June 1937, he preached these words on a Sunday morning to his church. We have no more authority than the apostles in the book of Acts had. In these days, we must obey God rather than man. He was soon arrested and placed in solitary confinement. Pastor Nemo's trial began on February 7, 1938. That morning, a green uniformed guard escorted the minister from his prison cell and through a series of underground passages toward the courtroom. Niemöller in that moment was overcome with terror. He was overcome with loneliness. What would become of him? What would become of his wife and children? What would become of the people in the church? What tortures awaited them all? The guard's face was impassive and he was silent as stone. But as soon as they exited a tunnel to ascend a final flight of stairs into the courtroom, Niemöller heard a whisper. At first he didn't know where it came from, for the voice was soft as a sigh. Then he realized the officer escorting him was breathing into his ear the words of Proverbs 18.10, the Lord is a mighty tower where his people can run for safety. The Lord is a mighty tower where his people can run for safety. Nemo's terror fell away and the power that verse sustained him through that trial and through seven years in Nazi concentration camps. There are moments in this life when the power of the word of God breaks through the unseen, the seen, the places we live, the anxieties, the fear, the strife, and the power of God's word breaks through that and reveals to us the unseen. 
reveals to us this world that's going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of, where Jesus Christ is ruler over all, and everything counter to God must bow down. And when the word of God breaks through those places, breaks through those strifes, the followers of Jesus are reminded of an unseen kingdom that has an all-powerful, all-good ruling king that is so much greater, so much better, so much more mighty than anything we can see in this life. And the book of Revelation is a gift to the church because as a book, the book breaks through the seen with the unseen power and eternal might of God, reminding us that nothing escapes his knowledge and nothing will overcome his rule. This book breaks forth with great awe and fear, showing us what God is really like. Perhaps a dimension of God that we don't talk about a lot or we don't think about a lot. When we see God laid out in this book, the proper response and reaction we often experience is a deep fear and respect for God, an awe of God, an awestruck wonder of God that, yes, lends itself into what the Bible calls the fear of the Lord. It's this deep reverence and respect. The fear of the Lord doesn't mean that we're afraid of God. Michael Reeves, a great theologian, writes this, The fear which pleases God is not a groveling, shrinking fear, for he is no tyrant. It's an ecstasy of love and joy that senses how overwhelmingly kind and magnificent, good and true God is. And that, therefore, leans on him in staggered praise and faith. We see things in Revelation that should cause this awe of God to surround our souls and our minds. John the Apostle encountered this risen king before the cross as he followed Jesus and after the cross after Jesus ascended. And the passage we have today gives us the motto of the book of Revelation and then dives into the first of seven visions that we see in the book. So if you have a Bible, I encourage you to open it up to Revelation chapter 1. I'm going to be covering verses 7 to 20 today. And in these verses, we see the motto of the book, we see a message of the book, and we see the Messiah that the book reveals. So let's look first at the motto of the book, verses 7 and 8 of Revelation chapter 1. It says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. All the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Make no mistake, the book of Revelation is about the second coming of Jesus Christ. That is the motto of the book. That is the main thrust of the book. Jesus is coming again. 
He is coming. And we see this description from the Old Testament highlighting what that's going to be like. Look, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. With the clouds is a direct translation from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Again, all many times in this book when we see these descriptive pictures, they're pulled from the Old Testament. So Daniel 7.13, notice the phrase, those who pierced him will mourn. That's from Zechariah 12.10. And it's important to note that the mourning it's talking about here is not repentance, but rather remorse. Because when Jesus comes, when he breaks through the clouds, there will be no more repentance. When Jesus comes and breaks through the clouds, it's over at that point. The mourning are tears of regret for those that do not follow Jesus. That is why it's so important and critical for us now to behold and take in what this book says. For God is patient and kind and he's giving time that many would come and understand this message so they can repent and turn their lives to him. But it's very clear here that when that time comes, there'll be no more repentance. Verse 8 tells us that Jesus is in complete and sovereign control. Alpha and Omega, the first letter of the Greek alphabet and the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He's saying he's in charge of it all, all of the beginning and all of the end, total control. The almighty Jesus who's in control of the past and the present and the future will return to earth again. That's what this is saying. God is revealing to his original readers of this letter that he has an authority like no other. And he will return. It should cause awe to rise in our hearts. In C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, the book, The Lion and the Witch and the Wardrobe, there's an interaction that happens with Lucy and Mr. and Mrs. Beaver. And Lucy is being told by Mrs. Beaver how amazing Aslan the lion who depicts Jesus Christ is, how powerful he is, how terrifying he is when you're in his presence, how he makes your knees knock. And he goes on to tell Lucy that you are going to see Aslan. And she gets nervous and she asks the question to Mr. Beaver, well, is he safe? And Mr. Beaver says, have you heard anything she said, child? Of course he's not safe. He's a lion, but he's good, and he's the king, I tell you. Sometimes I think we have a tendency, especially in the American evangelical church, to domesticate Jesus, to make him more comfortable in our image, to make him easier on the palate, to make him warm and fuzzy all the time. And we must remember that he's the king, that he's God, and Revelation helps us to do that. So the motto is Jesus is coming back again. Let's dive in and see the first of seven visions that we have here in the message in verses 9 to 11. 
It reads this, I, John, the Apostle John, who's writing this letter, your brother and partner in the affliction, kingdom, and endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos because the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and I heard a loud voice behind me like a trumpet saying, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Look at how John first describes himself in verse 9. Your brother and partner in the affliction. This is a man who understands suffering. In the affliction, in the kingdom, in the endurance. He knows suffering. He was banished to this island by an evil emperor named Domitian, not for doing anything bad, but for spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ. And this happened in the spring of 95 AD. Patmos was a small island. It was a rugged little prison island with crusty volcanic hills. And it is there that John encounters the risen Jesus Christ. And John speaks of all the things that Jesus told him to write down. Part of which are that he is our brother in the affliction. He is our brother in the endurance. Unlike the Roman Empire, that promises peace, but delivers fear, brutality, and torture. The kingdom of God, before Jesus returns, promises trials and hardships and afflictions, but truly delivers peace and confidence and eternal salvation to those who persevere to the end. I think at times we look too heavily on the comfort side of Jesus. And let me explain that, because there is a spiritual comfort that comes, that can only come through our Savior, and we should embrace that. But it's a comfort in a spiritual sense, because we don't always feel comfort following Jesus in the physical sense. Sometimes God calls us to do things that are extremely difficult, Sometimes God calls us to do things that are very uncomfortable. And I think at times as the church, we've painted this picture that following Jesus is all about this utopia where you live in a way that never requires us to suffer or get uncomfortable, that never requires us to do things we don't want to do. And we can make no mistake that this passage here, that this book that's being opened by the Apostle John, who's saying your brother and partner in the affliction and the endurance of suffering, it's these passages that we realize that Jesus is not always about comforting myself. Jesus is not always about protecting me and make sure I'm safe from anything that would come into my life while I walk on this earth. Following Jesus is about patterning our lives after his he didn't always live in comfort in this world. It will mean persecution for us at times. It will mean misunderstanding for us at times. It will mean that we feel awkward and out of place at times. 
And yes, it could mean that we even suffer at times. That's part of what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. We have a calling to obey. Following Jesus is not always easy. Following Jesus is not always easy, but it is always worth it. It's like the church gathers around this icy pond, which we can picture in this season that we live in now. And the church is gathered around the pond, and we talk about how the ice is strong, how God is good, how God is faithful. But we have to step out onto the ice if it means something. To really understand that God is faithful sometimes requires us to take a step into the unknown, into the uncertainty, because he's calling us to follow him in the midst of it. Make no mistake, your best life is not now. Your best life is when Jesus Christ returns. Your blessed hope. And build your life today on that moment and hope that he is coming again. And we patiently endure the difficulties of this life. And when we do so, we are walking in the footsteps of the Old Testament prophets. We are walking in the footsteps of Jesus' first disciples. And we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus Christ himself. John was, it says, in the spirit on the island of Patmos. So he was in two realities at the same time. He was on earth he had his feet in Patmos, but at the same time, he was in the reality of heaven. And while this was taking place, there was something of a trumpet voice that shouted. It was the voice of Jesus. And he gives messages to seven churches that we're going to unpack in the coming weeks. But notice why John wrote the book of Revelation in the beginning words of verse 11. He heard this voice like a trumpet, and it said, write on a scroll all you see. Why did John write the book of Revelation? Because he was told to write the book of Revelation. And if we heard the voice that he heard, we grab our pen right away. Yes, Lord. It was like a trumpet-like voice. But there's something even more awe-striking. Look at verses 12 to 20. We see our Messiah. John says, Then I turned to see whose voice it was that spoke to me. When I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was one like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe with a golden sash wrapped around his chest. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze as it is fired in a furnace, and his voice like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand. A sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth, and his face was shining like the sun at full strength. Notice, John first hears this trumpet-like voice behind him. Then he turns to see 
what that was. What would you do? You hear this voice that's like Niagara Falls amplified. That's enough to put us in shock right there. And then he turns to see where this noise is coming from. And the first thing he sees, it says, is seven gold lampstands. This comes from Exodus 25, 31, where God instructed Moses to make a lamp with seven branches. But here we see that the branches are separated and there's seven different lampstands. This is referring to the churches who are about to receive letters from Jesus. The churches don't think building, think people of God. The churches are gatherings of God's people who surrender the throne of their hearts to him while they're going through difficult stages and trials in this time. And at verse 13, we have to notice something. It says, among the lampstands was one like the son of man. That phrase, the son of man, that is a title out of Daniel saying he is the Messiah. Typically when we hear son of man, we think Jesus in human form. But this title is actually referring to Jesus as the king Messiah. It's one of, I think, Jesus' favorite titles for himself because the Old Testament writers put it into place and we see it in the New Testament in many places. The son of man. But don't miss this because there's something, something significant here. Look at where the son of man is in verse 13. And among the lampstands was one like the son of man. Jesus was in the midst of the lampstands. Jesus was among the churches. He was not out of touch with the struggling churches. He was in the midst of the churches. The churches are not left on their own to figure out all the crazy things going on in the world at the time of the Roman Empire. God wasn't far off just watching them saying, well, figure it out and do what you got to do. No, God was with them. Jesus was among them. He's deeply involved in their situation and he is leading and guiding them in his faithfulness and goodness. The language here is so important that we see this truth. Here we see Jesus in the middle of these churches in verse 16. It says that he holds these churches in his hand. Chapter 2 verse 1, he walks and interacts among these churches. Jesus is deeply committed to and acting on behalf of his followers. Don't ever let yourself believe, if you're a Christian, that he has left you. He's there. And then John expands into eight Old Testament images that describe the risen and returning King Jesus. And we're going to walk through these, but here's what I want you to think of. As we're walking through what John saw, after that cascading water sound voice. And he turns and he sees this and we're going to walk through what he saw. I want you to think about how do you picture Jesus today? When you're closing your eyes and you're worshiping, when you pray or when Jesus is talk about, talked about, how do you picture him? Maybe this will provide another picture for you. First, it says he had this long robe and a golden sash. This refers to the robe and the sash that ancient earthly rulers would wear. 
In the times of the Roman Empire, the emperor wore this sash. And it's also an allusion to Daniel 10.5, where it says Jesus wore this gold sash. It means he's highly exalted, a dignified leader. It's a symbol that he's greater than any earthly ruler at the time. It says also that the hair of his head was white as wool. Daniel 7.9 says, The Ancient of Days, which is another term for Messiah, Son of Man, was white like wool. Interesting that white wool was the major product and export of the region where all these seven churches are from. His original readers would know exactly what he's talking about. It also hints to the Mount of Transfiguration where John was before him and saw Jesus transformed into dazzling white. And now the same John is seeing the resurrected, risen, ascended Jesus in white as well. This is speaking of Jesus' wisdom and purity and incredible splendor. It also symbolizes his absolute victory over forces of evil. This is what the coming Lord Jesus looks like. It says also that his eyes were like a fiery flame. Verse 14, Daniel 10.6 says, The returning Messiah's eyes are like flaming torches. At one level, this also represents divine insight. That this returning Jesus has the ability to gaze into the human soul and separate every motive, every intention has perfect knowledge of the human heart, mind, soul, and strength and can discern and see what's happening. This risen Jesus knows the core of a person and it qualifies him to be the ultimate perfect reigning judge over all. Jesus knows the, the acts of the heart of all. And he knows the depravity of the nations that he will come and bring forth justice to all injustice on that day. His feet were like bronze. The idea is polished bronze, refined by fire. This is a military image which we see a lot of in the book of Revelation. This is depicting the risen, resurrected Jesus returning as a fierce warrior about to bring judgment to the nations that reject him. In chapter 2, 18, it portrays justice against evil. There was a cult in the time in one of these churches named the cult of Jezebel, and it did horrible, evil things. And we see that this Jesus who's returning is judging and making all the injustices just bringing just response. He has a powerful voice, verse 15. As we said, the sound of cascading water, the returning Jesus' voice is like the roar of the ocean. The voice of our returning king proclaiming salvation forever for those who followed and persevere and righteous judgment for those who did not. The stars in his right hand in verse 16 are the churches. In scripture, the right hand is usually, an all, usually always a symbol of authority and power. And in this image, the risen Messiah is holding these seven churches in his right hand. These churches are his possession. 
They will not be pulled away from him. They are protected and held in his right hand. The stars in the Old Testament often represent angels. These are angels, and we see this as the book unfolds. These stars are angels assigned to each one of the seven churches that's going to get a letter. This is a theme throughout the book, that there's an angel assigned to a church. Isn't that amazing? Think about that. An angel assigned to Crossview Church. Doing battle on our behalf in ways we don't even know of. This isn't a fairy tale. This is real. This is totally the case. It goes on. There's a sharp, double-edged sword that comes out of his mouth. The sword was the primary image of power and might in the Roman Empire. In fact, the Roman Empire and their soldiers had a saying. They'd always talk about the law of the sword. They'd always say to people who were resisting, especially Christians, you need to remember the law of the sword. There's this law of the sword that they, Christians would hear these soldiers say, especially in the book of Hacks. Oftentimes, Roman soldiers would say this phrase, the law of the sword, before followers of Jesus would get whipped and flogged. The message was loud and clear. Rome is in control of you. Jesus Christ is not. But nothing could be further from the truth. The returning Messiah counters with the ultimate sword. Isaiah 11.4 says that he will strike the earth with the rod that comes from his mouth. Isaiah 49.2 says his mouth is like a sharpened sword. This sword is the sword of judgment that we will see destroying beasts in chapter 19, symbolizing how he's carrying out the power of God on earth when he returns. And it says his face is shining like the sun, full of strength. When Moses came down from the mountain with the Ten Commandments, his face shone from the glory of God. And this symbolizes Jesus' power and his glory. Now think about this image. This is different than what we picture when we think about Jesus in our minds. We don't picture bronze shoes. We don't picture a mouth with a sword coming out. We don't picture white, dazzling as the sun. This is what John heard and saw. And when he saw this after that trumpet voice, look at verse 17 as what his reaction was. It says, Then I saw him, and I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was overpowered. His human strength in its strongest moment could not even take in the presence of the risen Jesus Christ and what is to come. In that moment, he had to buckle and fall because of the power that was coming from God, and he fell like a dead man. A dead man has no strength, has no resistance. That's the kind of power that emanated from Jesus and who he was. But don't miss this. This glorious, awesome fear-producing, returning Messiah does something amazing to this disciple John that he loves. Picture all that he went through and saw. And then in verse 17, after he says he fell like a dead man, look at the last sentence in verse 17. He, this risen, resurrected, coming Jesus, 
laid his right hand on me and said, don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. This awesome, fear-producing, rightfully so, more power than we can ever imagine, so much power and glory, it puts us on our face like people who are dead, has this heart that touches and comforts and says, do not be afraid, I am good. And I am here, and I am righteous, and I am truth. Let all this expand your view of God. Look at verses 18 to 20 as we close. He says, I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead on the cross, but look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Therefore, write what you have seen, what is, what will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Christ is present in this glory. And John responds with awe and fear. And in these last verses, Jesus is saying, I am the cosmic victor even over death. I rule everything in life and I will rule everything after death because he triumphed over death. He triumphed over Satan. He triumphed over Hades. He triumphed over hell. And the one who stands before John is standing in cosmic victory to all the spiritual forces in the unseen realm. And he instructs John to reveal these hidden truths to encourage the churches that he loves. Most scholars believe that these angels are guardians assigned to each church. And this whole section of scripture tells us that Jesus is indeed Lord over all, not only us as Christians, but the entire world because he is the conquering Messiah. We as his people can rest assured knowing that even now before his return, he watches over us and is completely in control of everything that happens. He watches over us individually as followers of him and corporately as his church. Angels assigned to us, watching over us. Do you realize that heaven is involved in all the things of your life? Do you realize as a Christian that there's an agent of heaven watching over your every moment there to give you strength and power and to walk out this thing called following Jesus. So when we gather for worship here at Crossview Church on Sunday morning, do we come in and align ourselves with God's will and these angels assigned to us or we, do we gather here so saturated with worldly living that we're oblivious to the unseen realm and what really happens when God's people come to worship? I don't know about you, but when we come to this place of worship, I think it would help us to picture the Jesus of Revelation 1. The Jesus who is coming back again. Allow that to enter into our minds as we come here to worship. 
Pastor Martin Niemöller had the unseen world break through into his seen world filled with terror and whisper in his ear, the Lord is a mighty tower where you can run to safety. When you are filled with fear, run to the Almighty. When you are filled with sin and guilt and condemnation, run to the Almighty. When you're filled with doubt and uncertainty, run to the Almighty. When you are confused and feeling broken, run to the Almighty. Run to the Almighty Savior and King who rules over all. And I don't know about you, but when I come into this place and worship, I want to leave all this world behind and enter into the kingdom of God that is active and moving behind the scenes. And when I leave this place and step out into the world he called me, I want to step out knowing that there's an unseen kingdom with a ruler who rules over all that has my back and will not allow anything to come into my life that he has not promised to walk with me in. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. Jesus Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the promise that the chapters of Christianity are not closed, but the book is still open. And we await with great anticipation and grace and forward-looking hearts to that wonderful yet awful day when you will come in power Prepare our hearts, Lord. Prepare our hearts and mind. And I ask that we as a church would behold you in your power, in your glory, in such a way that would make us fall to our knees when we see what you are really like. And at the same time, we would be the church that receives the touch of your hand that says, Do not be afraid. For I am the first and the last, the living one, and I am good. I am the king of all. Open our eyes to behold this, God, we ask. And I pray this in Jesus' precious name.